This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Adam Coleman, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for having me. Um, in a in a war, on the battleground, where are you positioned? <laughs> Currently, Wisconsin, <laughs> the, of all places. But yes, um, currently, um, I'm I'm sitting in a hotel room in Wisconsin, uh, speaking to parents um, who are speaking of war, trying to fight for their children in the public schools. Um, you know, we were doing an event where we we're empowering parents, but also showing parents who decided to run for school boards to fight against, uh, you know, gender ideology and, and critical race theory. But basically, the the strong activism that's happening within schools, uh, the teaching of morality within schools when that's not supposed to be their business, uh, that's for the parents to do. Um, so uh, it, it's strange because this is the third time I've been in, in Wisconsin, but um, it's strange how this place of all places is actually a battleground uh, being fought for the children. Um, in, in, in what sense? It's a battleground in activism. Um, even in these, you know, uh, we call them like red areas, mostly, you know, conservative areas, their schools are very liberal. Uh, the administration is liberal. You know, they're all going to schools where, you know, they've been brought up in this liberal ideology. So even though the people are relatively conservative, pretty religious um, and family oriented and just good natured people, they're having very uh, politically active, left leaning, uh, you know, people who are part of the school board or either administration, teachers, or all of the above. So it's become something that was, uh, I think over a period of time, just parents weren't aware of how much they've been infiltrated. Uh, in 2020 was the activation to go full bore mm. into you know all of this ideology. Um, but also 2020, because of COVID, exposed you know, that it was happening, you know, because the kids were at home and parents were saying, what is this? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. what, is, what am I, what is your teacher saying? Or what is, what is this homework assignment? Um, and so that's ultimately we woke up a lot of parents. It sounds like you're saying you're trying to make education great again. <laughs> or just, how about this? Let's make education, education again. <laughs> you know, let's let's just get back to the basics, because right now um, there's a lot of gaslighting that's happening where people are trying to say that that all of these people nationwide, uh, you know, people like myself who are speaking about this, we're all just watching Fox News too much and we're making a big deal out of nothing. It's like I, I've seen the homework assignments. I've seen the sexualization geared towards middle school kids. I've seen all of these different things, you know, uh, horror stories about teachers persuading kids to, and, or not, or the convincing kids that they're actually a different gender, right? Who are confused, you know? 
I'm an average American, to be honest with you. Um, I, I work in the IT field. That's my, my field of training. Um, and just, you know, one day I wanted to express myself. I wanted to write my book uh, because I was watching the country that I care about get turned upside down and become way overly emotional and way too simplistic. And then I'm watching this infusion of an ideology that actually I've been watching happening in colleges, right? Mm. And, you know, I don't think too many, you know, normies were paying attention to it. And that's fine, right? Because it felt like it was just, you know, in this institution where they're just, you know, painting their hair pink and purple and just acting stupid. But when they hit the real world, everything would be fine. And then, you know, COVID and George Floyd changed everything. Um, and they went full bore. And maybe it was already happening, but uh, I think it became extremely overt this time around. But uh, about myself, mm. I decided to I decided to write something. I decided to express myself and be unafraid to express myself. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about what is the real issue facing Black Americans, and that's the family. And I, and when you say that. It, they say, oh, that's a right-wing talking point, but it's the truth, right? And and that's all yeah. I care about. You know, I'm, I'm really not a partisan person. I'm politically independent. I'm socially conservative. I'm kind of a libertarian in some, some, uh, to some degree, but I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm a moderate person. I'm open to being mm -hmm. wrong. Um, but I, I think that people need to realize um, you know, normal people just want a normal existence. And I'm one of those normal people. And, you know, I grew up in the 90s. You know, obviously, you know, there's racist stuff happens here and there. But this tension that we're seeing today is not what I grew up around. Is not, and I've lived in different, different states within this country. This was not the general vibe. You know, there are people who are legit concerned. There are people on both sides who are very emotional. Um, and it is very divisive as to what's going on. So I wanted to just have my voice out there as a counter argument, you know, because there are people who think simply because of how I look, they've determined what my aspirations are or how much pain I must be going through and the trauma and all this other nonsense. When you examine my life, most of my trauma, you know, stems from either my childhood or my own mistakes. It's nothing to do with me, my race or anything like that. What are you saying that white liberals are not correct? Are they? Are you actually <laughs> saying that you are not oppressed? No, currently I am not oppressed. Um, <laughs> you know, I I think most people are oppressed if they want to be oppressed. You know, fortunate enough, we live mm. in a in a in a country where, for the most part, you're not oppressed. You know. No one's forcing you to do certain things. Are there things that happen, incidences that happen mm -hmm. where, like, for example, George Floyd? Are Does that happen? Yeah, but they're extremely rare. It is not the common. And that's ultimately the point I'm trying to make is that the outrage is disproportionate, right? Mm -hmm. We look at people like George Floyd when they get killed and then we use them as a martyr. But when that same guy terrorizes a neighborhood, then what? What do we say? Do we, you know, do we go after them? Do we criticize them? Do we say anything about it? No. 
And so everything seems to be disproportionate. The rage seems to be disproportionate. And the blame is is disproportionate. Mm. You know, you know, hold, you know, George Floyd situation, hold the police department accountable. Not the entire race, not every police officer that ever existed. You know, that is mm. disproportionate blame. So that's that's kind of like what I think there. And you started wrong speak and um and your book is um black victim to black victor, is that right? Correct. Correct. You you were talking about um your your upbringing, your background. Um I know that that you that you, s- you suffered a bit of homelessness um and fatherlessness. Yeah. You alluded you alluding to that now being um when you mentioned the family. I'm guessing that you're suggesting that the family is incredibly important. Not incredibly important, critical. I think it's critical to not just black people, but to Western civilization um, that we get back to that that way of thinking that um, fathers and mothers are important, not just one. That there is a benefit of having men within the household. Um, and as I'm writing the book, because I know that this is the number one issue, I wanted to use my story to highlight, you know, the number one issue and what I went through, what I felt. I can only speak for myself, mm. but I can also talk about behavioral psych- uh, and psychology, uh, just general basic things. And while I might not be a psychologist or anything like that, I've had psychologists read my book and they said, yeah, you're spot on what, what you're saying. You know, it's a it's a big interest of mine. So that's why I'm making these opinions and, and giving these perspectives, because, you know, the way I wrote, write the book, at times I say black, but at times I'm just very vague. Right. I don't say anybody. I say boys, girls, men, women. Right. Because there is a there is a common issue that's happening overall. We need to understand that. Family is extremely important. And when we don't focus on the family, the children suffer. And so this book is is very personal. Uh, I'm very open and honest about myself and what I went through. But I want people to see that single parenthood is detrimental to children, whether they realize it or not. And I think what happens far too often is someone might look at me and like, well, you did fine. It's like, well, you don't know what I went through to get to this point. Right. And you don't know the amount of people who just give up halfway through who say, why bother? Who never reach their potential. A, a lot of them don't reach their potential because mm-hmm. the father is supposed to help them uh, and guide them towards that particular direction. You know, I have a 16 year old son. Uh, he wants to do animation and I'm doing everything possible to help guide him towards his goal. Right. Because kids, you know, they get distracted with a bunch of different things. One day they seem to change their mind and do X, Y, and Z. But I've made sure, like, if you tell me this is your goal, this is what you want to do, I want to make sure you're focused on this. Mm. Not distracted by this girl or this new hobby. No, you want to, is this what you want to do? You're going to draw. Every time I see him, he has his drawing pad. He's always drawing, right? He's making his passion. This is what he wants to do. He's concentrating on it. He's focused. That's not a level of focus that I had when I was younger. And I suffered because of that. What you're suggesting, Adam, is that um, 
by extension, masculinity is also fairly important. <laughs> Extremely important. <laughs> Extremely important. Um, it is not toxic to be masculine. Um, are there are there bad things that men do? Well, there's bad things that women do. Like, there's bad people of every gender. There's bad people of every race. Like, that's not the definitive factor. Like, what I'm and and you would understand is that there are things that men can provide that women can't. It, it doesn't make me better than a woman. It just makes us different. And I, I think the conversation talking about men and women has been set up to be, well, men are doing this and it's because they're preventing women from doing like, no, this is not, this is not a competition and it shouldn't be. Women are, are ungen in, uh, on average are more nurturing than men. And that's fine. It doesn't mean that I can't nurture. It just means it's more natural for you. And that's fine. That's perfectly okay. But for men, we have a different set of attributes that they don't, that doesn't feel natural to them. But the, the entire prospect that I'm saying is that we need to have a balance between the two. And what I'm watching is our society and especially black, uh, for the black American population, there is no balance. It is completely one-sided. And so when you have a population of people who are off balance, you get off balance results. Is there actually a problem with, with black American culture or is it just perhaps hyped up media? Um, there is and there isn't. It's kind of both, right? What The way I kind of illustrate it is that like, for example, uh, criminality, right? Obviously, it's not half the black America population who committed many crimes. That's ridiculous. It's a very small but very hyper-violent population of people within uh, this, this demographic. It's a problem, um, but it's, it's a problem that's not necessarily being addressed. Right. We kind of just adapted it into being part of the culture, not necessarily being the culture, but part of it. Right. So, you know, I'm critical about hip hop, for example. Most black Americans listen to hip hop. That's fine. But if we're really looking at what it is, it's degeneracy. Right. And so, you know, you are, you know, human beings become what they intake. Right. It's like you eat crap food, you become a crappy person. You know, you don't feel good. Mm. You ingest crappy music, music of degeneracy. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean you become a degenerate, but what it means is that you kind of normalize degeneracy. It doesn't seem that big of a deal. So I, I think there's a lot of that. You know, when you listen to American hip hop stations, there's a lot of censoring and bleeping and, and, and uh, you know, even censored songs, when you listen to what they're talking about, it's horrible, <laughs> you know? So like the, the message is terrible. What they're talking about is terrible. And, and this is now part of our culture. And I criticize that and, and say, well, you know, kids are listening to this. You know, that's something we should be kind of careful about. Um, I don't, honestly, 
personally, like I, I never played hip hop in front of my son. I got into hip hop later as a teenager. Mm. And, um, but as I got older, and especially after having my son at the age of 21, I really started looking and like, I don't, I don't want this for him, you know? So literally every time I could be blasting, whatever I go and pick up my son, I would never play it, never play. I, my son heard electronic music for basically his entire life uh, because I didn't want to set that as an example. He may, he's old enough now where he could listen to whatever, but, um, I don't think there's enough protecting children from, you know, basically degenerate music that provides nothing but a nice beat. Um, and I think there's something about that. You've touched on a couple of things from family to um, masculinity slash fatherhood um, as being vital. Do you think that these things are under attack? Masculinity, yes. Fatherhood, yes. Um, you know, people like to talk about uh, di you know, disparities, right? But they like to talk about disparities when it's convenient. Um, there is a disparity when it comes to uh, fathers having allowance to their children, control over their families, especially in situations where there's separation. So divorces, the children go with the mother, right? She basically has to be a horrible mother to not get the kids. Same thing goes when it comes to paternity. Um, you know, if you're not in a relationship, you're not getting a divorce, you just have children with someone. Uh, the children go with the mother. It's by default. And it's not by, well, can she take care of the kids? Can she do this? Does she have multiple kids? Like, there's very little consideration. And you, the mother basically has to be a terrible mother to not get those kids. And, it, and a lot of times it has to come under a lot of scrutiny for it to even happen. Uh, unless the mother willfully lets the kids go to the father, right? Which doesn't generally happen. So there's a there's a huge gap in fairness when it comes to families. The women have control, and and if I was to bring it back to Black Americans, you know, mm. when seventy percent of us grow up in single parent homes, and granted, people will push back and say that doesn't mean that the father's not involved. That's not the point. And by the way, when people say that, I think to myself, why is the bare minimum acceptable to you? right because that's bare minimum you know I, I i'm not together with my son's mother i see my son on the weekends i know that's bare minimum and i'm trying to do the best i can as a father but why do these people accept that as just being fine right and just make excuses for that number but um when 70 percent of black uh boys and girls don't live with their father or raised with their father in the house that means that the mother is control. I just want to clarify something. You, unless I misunderstood you, you just said that you see your son on weekends. But I remember a few months ago you were engaged. Oh, okay. So let me clarify. Uh, I had my son at the age of 21 um, with uh, his mother. We never got married. We had a relationship. It was, you know, off and on relationship. Um, she ended up getting married to somebody else. We uh, co-parent okay. well. Okay. Um, I just recently got engaged. Well, I recently got married in September to someone else. So okay. that's, yeah. Sorry, it just it was like there was a wire that was crossed, and I, I was I couldn't quite join it. 
No, no, don't worry. I, it's no problem. You yourself grew up um, without a father. You've spoken about this, and you also grew up homeless a few times. Um, I think I think you said you've lived in five different states. I mean, that's that's a substantial amount of traveling. Yeah. How do you think that impacted you? Did it have a net positive effect or a net negative effect on you? Um, a net negative. So, it, it, so when I say I moved to five states, that's five states in, in my life, four states before the age of 18. Um, and to even be clear, within those states, I moved a lot. So uh, like for example, New Jersey, I think I've lived in six counties in, within New Jersey. Um, there's a period of time where I was moving basically every year. Um, and that's as an adult. What, what has happened to me is that I don't feel stabil uh, stability. Like I don't, I move somewhere and it's fine, but I don't feel stable. Like I'm willing to do stuff to make me unstable and go somewhere else. And, um, but I, you know, as an adult, I, I, I want to say there was a period of time where I moved six years in a row, you know, from one place to another to, you know, so, um, I, that's when you learn to have very little stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, before I got with my, my now wife, um, I was renting a room. I didn't have, I rented a room because I didn't want any furniture because I knew I was going to move at some point, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's what, what my life has turned into. You know, we didn't own a home, obviously we rented, you know, mm -hmm. that's what I've turned into for me. So, you know, I'd love to one day, feel like I have a home but it's really difficult to have that feeling when I never really had it but Klaus Schwab said that you'll own nothing <laughs> and you'll be happy uh for once you know he's always right about a lot of things but for once he is wrong about that um I think he's wrong about everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's basically wrong about everything and I don't want to eat bugs either <laughs> so you know just let me just quickly just go off on a tangent for a second but when he says stuff yeah. like that um i i mean i live on the african continent right so i i have a different world view i see poverty like like you've never seen and when mm -hmm. he says things like you'll own nothing and you'll be happy you cannot believe how out of touch he is with reality Adam, I can guarantee you the millions of South Africans that live in absolute squalor are not happy. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting that elites like him can say stuff like that. Uh, well, you know, and, and it's an, it's a very elitist viewpoint. You know, the, the people who feel they are the masters of the mm -hmm. industries and, and they can now dictate and let's have a conference where we set the agenda for the rest of the world. That mm. kind of thinking um, is absent of what people actually want. You know, I remember working for a corporation once and we would get these initiatives where they're like, you need to do this moving forward. And I would ask myself, did they ever ask anybody like how effective this is mm. or like what it's like to do this? Because this is idiotic. You've like, spoken about how feminism um exploits black women what do you mean by yeah. that what i mean is that they use them all right basically the, the the best way of putting it is 
anytime there is a feminist function, feminist movement, feminist agenda, they love to highlight black women. Mm. So the easiest one to talk about is body positivity. If you ever see anything related to body positivity coming from the States, it means it means you're fat. Yeah, yeah. Fat, fat ladies. Uh, Most of the time you'll see a black woman being put up front. Um, Part of the reason, besides a lot of black women are feminists, even if they don't think they are, but they behave like feminists. But part of the reason why is because um, black American women are the fattest demographic in the country. Um, More than half are considered overweight. I'm sorry, more than half are considered obese. Um, And I believe it's 80% in total is is overweight. Uh, So that's that's an extreme number. Um, And I know people like to pick at, you know, BMI and all this other stuff. But if you got eyes and you look, you can tell when someone's overweight. And while Americans in general are getting big, I'm not the skinniest guy in the world, but it is it is highly concerning when you have a particular agenda that's telling women there's nothing wrong with you, that healthy looks different than human existence, (laughs) that it doesn't matter your size, you're beautiful, you're great, you're wonderful, and shame them when they try to lose weight. You know, I'm not a big fan of Lizzo, but I remember there was a period of time when she was talking about how she had lost, you know, five, 10 pounds and she was feeling a little bad, she's sleeping better, and she got crap from her own fans. Because they've held her up as this, you know, uh, you know, this fat martyr in a way. <laughs> mm. You know, she's getting fat for us. She represents us. You know, that kind of way of looking at it. Uh, but it, it, it's much in the way that misery loves company. So, if she can represent this fat person to aspire to be, who is famous and has money, you know, then the, you know that's that's what they want to keep. They want to keep the status quo. I get the impression sometimes, though, that it's that white knight savior syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. It it's always the white liberals who are who are thinking that they are helping and saving the oppressed black people. And mm-hmm. I want to add to that because it's so profoundly racist. Because what they're suggesting is that they are superior. And they are the ones yeah. who can help the poor, the poor underclass black. Well, you're not wrong, but I would like to add to that. Uh, there are saviors, and it's funny you bring this up because uh, I'm, I'm working on my second book talking about saviorism. Uh, the saviors aren't just white. They're black as well. And what they end up doing is um, they equate the the lower class black people who are having issues as being the encompassing black problem and only they know the solution right it's much in the way that you see a lot of the 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 professor jargon coming from black professors Mm. right it's not always coming from white professors preaching this stuff a lot of times it's coming from black professors these are people who are tenured you know, intelligent people, they might be spitting ridiculous stuff, but they're intelligent people, Um, uh, you know, financially doing well, all these, all these different things. They are a class above me, right? 
and, and that's fine, more power to them. But what, in, what they end up doing is believing that they know the solution to the lower class problems. And that's kind of the elitist view, you know, thinking that they know the solution and making sure that everybody does something to resolve their solution and never allowing the people who may need help to fix it for themselves or even guiding, you know, providing some support. They want to dictate the narrative. They want to dictate control. So the savior mindset is, uh, it has no racial bounds, although it stands out when it's someone who isn't black. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think. And, and you know what's funny is that, I mean, I'm halfway around the world and I see the same thing. Hmm. It permeates. Yeah. It permeates everything. Yeah. I mean, there, that's why I try to make the distinction. There's a difference between helping people and saving people, hmm. right? You, you can listen I've been helped by people they didn't ask for anything they I didn't ask them they just wanted to help right but then they're saving people right and that is a whole encompassing thing like the the, the need like it, it's a it's a need to do so right it's not an option it's a need to do so it's not asking they're, they're just bombarding people with desires to do whatever they decide to do um you know there is a interesting dynamic when it becomes from the savior and the victims i talk about it a little bit in the book the victims need saviors right and the saviors need victims it, they're codependent so the victims need saviors to you know speak up for them to do things for them to advocate for them but in reality the victims hate their saviors. They hate that they need to depend on them, but they mm. need them, right? Because they've weakened themselves to, to feel the need that they need a savior. On the other end, the saviors need victims. The victims make them look better. You know, the victims help to socially make them look, look good. Look what I've done for these poor people. Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing my part. You know, you hear all these savior phrases um, where they're, they're uplifting themselves socially by doing something for the poor, pitiful, disenfranchised, whatever. You know, that is the savior mentality to use someone else's plight to make themselves look better. Um, and it's not coming from a genuine place. Virtue signaling, I think is the term. Yeah, yeah that's the aspect of virtue signaling. But uh, the, the last thing I wanted to say is saviors don't even like their victims. Right. So even the people who are virtue signaling, they look down upon these people. They don't really like them. Right. Yeah. They're, they're just they're just there as a convenient way to make themselves look better. And their saviors on the individual level, on the corporate level, uh, institutional level. And so that's kind of why I'm, I decided to write my book about saviors, mm. because we got saviors all over the place. I've never seen it to this degree. How did Obama win two terms and how did Oprah become pretty much one of the largest TV personalities in history? Um, what what uh, race essentialists will say is that uh, they slipped through the cracks. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's essentially what they would say. You know how it goes. There's always an answer. 
Yeah, there's always the answer. This white supremacist system. Damn it, we let another black billionaire go through. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't let that happen again, guys. <laughs> no more Oprahs. Cut it out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite it's quite amazing. You know, all right. Actually, I'll bring something up, especially because you're in South Africa, and I don't know if you're aware of this. See, when you get in the trenches of like black dialogue, especially on Twitter, it's quite interesting. Um, so one of the things that people on the right say is like, all right, well, if if America is such a white supremacist nation, then how come black immigrants come here and do extremely well, right? So now that narrative has turned into uh, black Americans uh, becoming, what was it, ADOS, uh, African descendants of slaves. <laughs> what? Yes. So the, the purpose of saying, well, I'm ADOS, right, is to separate the black Americans and the black Africans or even Caribbean, right? But it's to, it's to talk specifically about someone like myself. Which actually, I'm, I'm only half ADOS. My father's from Trinidad. But um, I can qualify as ADOS. Let's just say that. Yeah, you're actually right. Because the term African-American, from where I'm sitting, appears to be fairly condescending. Yes. It should be. Um, but that's why I, in the book I, I say black. Mm. I prefer... If we're going to use that, a particular term to talk about... them. Let's go with black. Uh, I'm I'm not an African, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, f- funny you should say that because the wealthiest African American is Elon Musk. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a it's a silly to me. It's a silly term. Um. Uh, but we've had different terms. We've had Negroes. You know. We've had mm. we've had a bunch of different terms throughout uh, throughout the generations. But um. But it's. It's interesting that there is this purposeful separation between ADOS and everybody mm. else. And I personally believe uh, they might say something different, but here's what I believe. I believe they do it because they know the truth. They know that black Africans who were coming from a place where maybe they have nothing they come here with you. Hear, we hear the immigrant stories. I came here with fifteen dollars in my pocket, and look at me now. I'm sustainable. I have a house. And I have this. These people come from nothing. Sometimes not even knowing the language, and they're able to outperform you. It makes them look bad. Mm. So they'd rather separate themselves to try and say, "Well, they come here because they don't have the same historical experiences as us," right? So they move the goalposts, right? So it was white supremacists, but well, you know, it's because of our history. So they move the goalposts again. You know, it's never, it's never consistent. It's never consistent. Thomas Sowell has written quite a lot about that, actually. Uh, he also, yeah. he also mentions the Asians that do very well in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which is funny because when it's convenient, uh, mm-hmm. Asians get put into the category of essentially white. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you know, but during apartheid, Asians, except for those from Japan, were not classified as as white. Okay, so they were 
part of the oppressed bracket. But mm. Japanese were classified as honorary white. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know they were given honorary status. <laughs> I, I suspect like, it had to do with trade relations. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe so. It's like you know what, you Japanese aren't that bad. You're honorary. <laughs> uh, you're just an Uncle Tom. You are just in denial about your own inherent. Um, what would what would the word be? Uh, inferiority. Uh, why don't you just mm-hmm. accept it? Why why are you why are you protecting? whiteness how do you respond to to that kind of comment oh i usually don't (laughs) i don't respond to it because it doesn't it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. like uh if anybody follows me on twitter i rarely argue with people i talk to the people i discuss things but i'm not there to argue with you why because it doesn't matter if there is this white supremacist system that's here Man, it's, it's it's shitty white supremacist system that's happening right now. It's it's really bad because every time I work hard and every time I do something, I I tend to come out on the the good side, right? Or if there's so many, if white people are just so hateful of black people mm-hmm. on a consistent basis all the time, no matter what, man, I've had the worst racists help me out in life without asking. Mm-hmm. I've had coworkers who are friends of mine who say, you need to leave this job because bad things are about to happen and you need to get out. And I left that job, found something better. And guess what happened a few months later? They laid everybody off because they knew what was coming, right? I've had um, one, one time when I, when I was homeless for a little bit, the reason I was homeless was uh you know something fell through with the guy i was supposed to stay with and so i was going to sleep in my car and i told my boss because i had just moved to tennessee and i told him the truth because he asked me you know how's your situation i was going to sleep in my car and until i had enough money to get my own place they came together and put me in a hotel i didn't ask them for that they weren't trying to save me they didn't pity me they just they said listen we don't want you to sleep in your car you seem like a good guy. We're going to put you in a hotel room. And these were mostly white people that did this. They never asked for me to pay me any money back. They never treated me differently. They just wanted to help me. That's what help looks like. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what you're saying is that people are generally good. I think people are, if the environment is, if, if there's a fair environment, right? I think it's different if you live in a, like a war-torn area, right, where you're constantly in survival. It's hard to be all the time good and and charitable, right? But fortunate enough, we live in a wealthy country where most people have their necessities taken care of, right? So it's a lot easier to be generous to people. You know, I I donate stuff. I'm not rich, but I've donated money to to the military and stuff like that because, yeah, I I could spare $20, I could spare $40 to, to help somebody else. That's fine. So, yeah, in, in, our, in our country, in our current situation, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to be a naturally good person, right, who just wants other people to do well. And that is within our American culture, right, amongst other things. But generally speaking, we've come to this point 
And people like to criticize, you know, the, the colorblind society. That's the society that I grew up in, right? We, we grew up where if you were a shitty person, you were a shitty person. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, same thing with the Internet. There's all this talk about censorship. I remember the old days of the Internet where, yeah, there was this white supremacist over there. You know what we did? We ignored them, right? We did. <laughs> they went and created what? their own. What a noble yeah. idea. I know. They went and created their own website and did their own hate mongering on their own. And guess what? We left them to their own mm -hmm. demise. Like they did their own thing. And the rest of us, we, we were fine. You know, so there's, there's always going to be that. Wasn't there some racist black man who had a dream about judging people by the <laughs> content of their character rather than the color of their skin? Uh, I mean, he, he would be considered so racist for saying that now. Well, it's it's interesting because depending on who you talk to, especially on the left, they highlight him to a degree. Mm. Some of them actually, I, I've talked to someone who was like, uh, like almost like he pacified white people or like he he gave them a break and he shouldn't have, right? Because they subscribe to the more, or at least at the time, the Malcolm X viewpoint of being, mm. you know, militant and, you know, get these white crackers, you know, that kind of mentality. And even he changed his mind. <laughs> you know, even he had, and that's interesting about Malcolm X. No one talks about when he had that revelation when he went to Mecca. Right, that's what got him killed. Is because he stopped being hateful. He's he stopped preaching animosity, right? So, you know, I'm tempted to say that hatred is profitable. Um, conflict is profitable. Mm. Conflict is profitable. I think if you can convince people that one side is the oppressed and the other side is the oppressor that creates conflict and, and someone's going to be there to film it and you keep that going yeah yep you keep it going i mean it, there is yeah. no limit to it that's what makes marxism so um toxic so diabolical because mm. you can literally pick that for anything like you can you can do it with sexuality you can do it with gender you can do uh, you know, economically, you can do you can do it for literally anything. You can make a dichotomy out of anything, and whoever appears ahead will be the oppressor, regardless. Mm -hmm. and, and so, what I'm trying to do is push back against that because one, I know the roots of it, right? Um, I know that it comes from Karl Marx, or at least Karl Marx helped uh, proliferate it. You know, a lot of what Karl Marx is talking about comes from the art of war. Uh, you know, it's a divide and conquer strategy, really. Um, that's why, you know, our, our country can be torn apart and no bullets are fired. It's as simple as that. Do black lives matter? <laughs> um, black lives have always mattered. No one needed to tell us that. Um, we should really ask them, do black lives matter? Have you ever... I don't know if you've got an iPhone. Have you ever asked Siri, do black lives matter? And then after she's answered the question, ask her, do all lives matter? Have, have you got an iPhone? No, no, I have a Google phone. Oh, okay. I, I don't know what, 
I don't know what the equivalent would be, but it's it's quite scary how she responds. She has different answers, <laughs> um, and it's exactly as you would think. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. What what is she actually? I'm curious. What does she call you when you say "Do all lives matter"? All lives matter is often used in response to the phrase "Black lives matter." but it does not represent the same concerns. To learn more about the Black Lives Matter human rights movement, visit blacklivesmatter.com. <laughs> okay, wait. Wait, now listen to this. Listen to this. Hey Siri, do Black Lives Matter? Yes, Black Lives Matter. Just as simple as that. Okay, cool. <laughs> she had a whole diatribe for All Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter, yes. End of story. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of... Um, I'm trying to think of the best way of putting it. There's a lot of, on its face, it looks fine, um, but it because of the way it's worded, it's hard to criticize. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples. It's not coming to me, but... Black Lives Matter is one of those things where um, if you say, yeah, but, you know, it, it, like you said, it's very cleverly worded because there's a difference between the organization, the sentiment, uh, you know, their their activities, you know, you know, all these other things. And it gets wrapped up into this one phrase. Um, so do Black Lives Matter? Obviously. Do I like Black Lives Matter, the organization? No, I think <laughs> I think they are um, a bunch of Marxists, and they've admitted so, and um, and they are the epitome of what's wrong uh, within our society, or what they promote, I should say. I am the typical American who is tired of being quiet, who is tired of letting the media speak for me, who is tired of letting elitists speak on behalf of me, who is tired of. Uh, placing me as an inherent victim, uh, a loser in American society. I was tired of it, and I wanted to use my voice to say my perspective and be, uh, you know, potentially wrong, right? That's the beauty of speech and the freedom to say so. I could be wrong, but this is how I feel. And I want to be able to express myself in a thoughtful manner, uh, and, and see what people think. I want to be able to, to express the importance of certain values. You know, I'm a Christian, but you don't have to be a Christian to think that family is important. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to say that certain things are morally wrong in Western society. And we shouldn't be allowing this. And we shouldn't allow people to guilt trip us, gaslight us, tell us that what you see is not really happening. We see it, we see what's happening. And, and my optimism is that, you know, 2020 was a roller coaster year in negative ways, but the rebound from it is that it red-pilled a lot of people. It red-pilled people on the usage of government. It red-pilled people on their, you know, Americans are kind of like distrusting of government, sort of, depending. But it really gave a perfect example as to why you should always criticize people in power. It doesn't matter what team they're on. I've talked to so many people who are conservative who have their eye on Republicans and what they do. And I'm, I'm an independent, but I'm still in that realm where it's like, yeah, 
yeah, you need to watch these people, right? Especially in the federal government. You need to watch them and hold them accountable. You can't sit in, in, on the sidelines and not participate. You know, I just left a meeting and these parents are going in and running to be on these school boards. They're taking control. They're taking back their community, you know, and I think that I'm ultimately trying to have people just be critical. You know, I'm critical of myself, critical of of my actions, my behaviors, all the different things that I've done in my life. And I do that because I want to be better. I want to be a better person, right? But I don't want to be guilted. I don't want to be pressured into doing stuff or thinking stuff that I don't think makes any sense. We should all have the right to feel how we want to feel. If someone wants to be a victim, have at it. But don't tell me that I'm a victim, right? So that's that's ultimately where where I'm coming from. I would also um, be skeptical of of your government, um, primarily because I, I I don't understand a word that your president says. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, he doesn't either. <laughs> I don't know who's running the show. <laughs> like I'm being dead serious. I don't know who's running the show. I don't know if it's his handlers. I don't know if it's the party. I don't know if it's Kamala. I, I don't know who's running the show. At least with Trump, I know that he's running the show. All right. Or even even with Obama, for the most part, he was running the show. You know, they all play politics to a degree. Mm. But I don't know who's running the show. I personally think they're giving him uppers. Right. They're giving him like drugs to keep, like for press conferences. So he's like somewhat lucid because <laughs> I watched him during the, the campaign trail and he was drifting and he couldn't concentrate. And then all of a sudden for the debates with Trump, he's he's like this. I'm like, something's up here. They, they're mm-hmm. giving this guy drugs. They're propping up. You know, it's like a, it's like weekend at Bernie's. Right. They're popping him up so they can make it past the finishing line. You know, so that's. That's my. That's how I see it. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. Mm-hmm. What do you see? I see people waking up. I see things getting better within our country. I see. Um, we throw this term around the revolution, right? But I see a nonviolent revolution of the average American standing up to people in power. The average American turning off the news, right? Because they're they're full of shit and people are realizing it. I'm watching the average American question the establishment when they didn't before, or not enough of them did. So I'm watching the average American become uh, politically involved, culturally involved, but not activists, right? And I think there's a difference. Um, they're saying, what can we do? How do we fight back? And how do we keep control of our country? Because right now it feels like, almost like a foreign ideology has infected our country. Um, and, and it's just spreading like COVID. You know, that's, that's kind of what it feels like. So I, I think in this crystal ball, I'm, I'm an optimistic person. You know, the fact that I'm here talking to you means that I'm one of many who are waking up, who are wanting to speak out and say something and stop sitting on the sidelines. So I think that's what 2022 is going to look like. I think you're going to see that in the elections coming up soon. 
I think the midterms are going to be a reflection of parents being pissed off about what's happening in their states. New Jersey, for example, we're right next to the state of New York. We kind of go back and forth a little bit as far as, but we're we're usually Democrat leaning. The governor almost became uh, almost won uh, as far as a Republican governor, and that guy didn't even campaign. I didn't even know who was running, to be honest with you. Um, and then the rest of the seats, New Jersey went red. Outside of the governor position, New Jersey is a red state, and no one saw it coming. Same thing with Virginia, no one saw it coming, right? But you know who did see it coming? The people, the people saw it coming because I'm, I'm looking at the tea leaves and people are waking up and they do not like what is happening. So the, the average middle of the road independent American, that's our, our population of people, not these stupid leftists, not even, mm-hmm. matter of fact, not even political partisans in either party. Those aren't our representatives. There's far more independent people apolitical people who like the normalcy, who like saying that there is a difference between men and women, or that you cannot just become a, a man or a woman overnight just because you said so. And and so they like that normalcy. And they're standing up and saying, we want that back. Um, as a as a bystander, I'll just say hashtag De- uh, DeSantis. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I'm 100% behind you. I, I, I see DeSantis as, as a more polished, I hate to say this, a more polished Trump, right? And, and a more consistent conservative kind of mindset of a person um, who doesn't care about sucking up to the media, but he's not going to attack the media, right? And I think it's a little bit different. But if they come at him, he'll, he'll fight back. He has a focus on freedom, mm. which is why he's becoming more and more popular, despite what you hear in the media. So I'm I'm all about DeSantis 2024, simply because I think that while I don't necessarily have a problem with Trump, I think Trump's name is too polarizing. Mm. And, and all it will do is bring back the hashtag resistance people and make our, our country just so angry and vibrant um, I know you're not here, but I'll tell you, even though Trump had lost, the temperature of the country just dropped 50 degrees. Like you could feel it. It's like, finally, we have our answer. We could just move on. Right. And and in some ways, not having Trump, it was a good thing from from the, the temperature of the country. So I don't want that to come back. I'd much rather see a DeSantis um, uh, come into come into the field put DeSantis in a truck and suddenly he'll be seen as a fascist <laughs> you know what's funny they try all the time to slander him you know I, I, I follow uh, Christina Pushaw uh, I've talked to her too a couple times she's a, she's great and she ballsy and everything and she laughs at these people because they, they try really hard like Trump is easy to find stuff, dirty stuff that he did maybe in the past or his behavior and stuff like that, because he never sought out to really become a politician. DeSantis is a, I believe he's a veteran. You know, he's a a godly man. He's a conservative. Uh, you know, he seems to be a man of principle. And man, it's really hard to find dirt on people like that. So, <laughs> you know, they try everything. 
what you know why isn't he in, in in the office right now oh because he's with his wife who's going through cancer like you like you can't come up with anything else you can't come up with anything else so what come up with. where can people follow you find you um i'm very active on twitter so if you look up at wrong underscore speak um on facebook um listed as um i think it's wrong speak adam uh instagram is at wrong underscore speak uh or people can just go to wrongspeak.net. uh they can see the articles that i've written uh and find uh, find out more about myself if anybody wants to write an article for wrong speak uh feel free to contact me uh, through the website and uh, we can discuss it and help help to publish it. But uh, I know we didn't get, talk too much about it, but I started Wrong Speak initially for myself because I wanted a place to express myself, but I quickly wanted to turn it into an avenue for other people to express mm-hmm. themselves. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always appreciative when people take the time to write something, you know, even people who have no real experience of writing who are amateur writers i help them to get to a point where it's a it's a good article that people actually want to read um and so so far it's been it's been great just you know quality over quantity but it's been it's been good right now i'm sitting on like four submissions um Mm. and so if you told me you know a year ago this would be happening i i don't know if i believe you adam coleman thank you so much for joining me in the trenches Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare. Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.